Welcome uh, to worship today. In Revelation chapter 20, we read some of the more interesting uh, words in all of this great book. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years are over. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Several weeks ago, we looked at that passage and then spent an entire service kind of unpacking what I called millennial mania. We were asking the question, how is the world going to end? And when you talk about eschatology, this study of last things, it comes from that Greek word eschatos, which means last things. The study of eschatology kind of centers usually around views of the millennium. And so today, although we're not going to spend much time on each one, I want to very quickly review these again with you. Nothing like the detail we had before, but then when we do that, then we're going to jump back into chapter 19, and I want to talk with you for a while about the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage ceremony, and the second coming of Christ. These are obviously very important passages in scripture and so I want us to learn all that we can from them. So if you have your notes in front of you today at all of our different locations, I invite you now to look with me on the screens and let's just review quickly what each of these major millennial views say. The first one called historical premillennialism is the oldest. Showed up as early as 150 AD, Justin Martyr and many other early church fathers. Here's the basic idea. The belief is that Christ is going to come back pre-millennium, before the millennium occurs. In this view, Christians will go through a time of great tribulation right here. T stands for the tribulation period. They'll go through that, uh, whether it's seven years or however long it may be, This belief says Christians will endure hardships, and they take that from many passages in the New Testament. But then we'll be caught up to meet, apontesis, to meet the Lord in the air, and then as was the custom for any dignitary coming, we will come back then to earth, come back as they did then to the city, and celebrate with that great dignitary. When our Lord comes, he will initiate his millennium, at the end of that, there will be a judgment of those who've died and those who are alive at that time, and then he will inaugurate the eternal state. 
This is called historical premillennialism. I know that's a lot to wrap your brain around, but just a couple of words about this before we look at the next one. This view believes the world will generally get worse and worse, okay, right up until the time of great tribulation. And this view believes that the millennium is different in kind from the world as we experience it now. It's different in kind. In other words, what Jesus does during this millennium will be totally different than life as we know it now. The lion will lie down with the lamb. You know, there will be a difference in nature. The child will be able to play over the hole of a snake and not get hurt. And those kinds of things will be fulfilled during that millennial reign. The second view, called dispensational premillennialism, is by far the most popular view today. Now, in my estimation, based on conversations I've had with people at Grace and all over the capital region, my guess is that 90%, 90%, and I'll stand by that number, didn't know there was another view except this. Because it's been so popular that it's all that people have generally heard unless they've intentionally decided to study eschatology and views of the millennium. Now, how does this one differ? This is the newest view, by the way. It first appeared in the 1830s. It is premillennial, so that part is old, but John Nelson Darby introduced two innovations that I told you about a few weeks ago. One is the secret rapture, and that is that will believers will be caught up in this rapture to meet the Lord in the air and will go away with the Lord to heaven. Then... They will return with Christ. So there's two comings, one where he comes for his saints and one where he comes back with his saints. The secret rapture means that Christians won't go through any of the great tribulation. They will be raptured out of the world before that even begins. But just like the first view, this view teaches that the millennium will be different in kind from life as we know it now. But here's the second great innovation. I'm telling you all this because I feel responsible that anybody who calls grace their home or who even worships here ought to be generally aware of these views and what they teach. This view says that the millennium is really not about the church so much much as it's about God's theocratic faithfulness to Israel. It's about God keeping promises to Israel that this view says God has made that were unilateral, unconditional, okay? And so the millennium is really about a sort of restored Israel, a literal temple in Jerusalem, a literal reign of Christ on the earth from Jerusalem, okay? Blood sacrifices reintroduced, people coming from all over the world to the Holy Land and keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and so on. That's what this view teaches. At the end of it, just like the first view, there'll be a judgment and the eternal state. Now, this is in many ways the most complex view because it has numerous resurrections, numerous judgments, and so on. But this is called dispensational premillennialism. It has been popularized mostly by people like Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, 
and by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins in the incredibly popular Left Behind series and by numerous movies according to those same lines. But when you get beyond these two premillennial views, you then come to two views that are radically different. The first one is called postmillennialism, and this teaches that the millennium is not just different in kind, it's not different in kind, it's different in degree. And whereas the first two views say that the world will generally get worse, the thing you need to know about postmillennialism is that it says the world will generally get better before Jesus returns. This is called post-millennialism because it teaches that Jesus will return after post-millennium. Now, the millennium is different in degree here, not in kind. So the church age, that's what we're in now, just kind of blends into the millennium. Jesus is not reigning physically on earth. He's reigning through his gospel. He's reigning through his church. He's reigning through Christian principles. Postmillennialism is the most optimistic view by far of all of these views. It kind of has a built-in theological reason to get up every day and think that God is on the move and we're excited and privileged to be working with him. Uh, at the end of this, there will be a judgment and then the eternal state. And then the final view, amillennialism, which is in many ways the simplest view of all. The simplest view of all. And the reason for that is it teaches that the church age and the millennium are really the same thing. We're in the millennium right now. The millennium really started with the first coming of Jesus, more specifically with his resurrection, and it will go for as long as it takes for him to return, okay? So we're in the millennium right now. Jesus is ruling and reigning in our hearts, and wherever we live, we are enjoying his presence, enjoying his reign and rule in our lives, okay? And whereas the premillennials say the world will get worse, and the postmillennials say it'll get better, amillennialists say no. It's going to pretty much continue as it has with good and evil running on parallel tracks all the way until Jesus comes. This view sees the Revelation as very much a book of principles that are relevant for Christians no matter where they find themselves. Now, those are the four millennial views, and some of you probably... Uh, just scratch your head and go, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. I think it'll all pan out in the end, right? And so you just go, man, anytime you talk like that, you're way over my head that some of you have said that to me. Well, that, that's certainly not the intent, but I do feel a certain responsibility for you to be aware of what those views are. Now, what do we conclude about these millennial views? Because they, they certainly are taken from Revelation 20. I, my favorite definition of the millennium is it's a, it's a period of a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. That's my favorite definition of the millennium. It's a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. But I hope we understand 
that this is not an issue worth fighting over. I mean, it's just not, folks. There are some issues where, yeah, we should be willing to go to the wall for them, but not your eschatological view of the millennium. There are people in Grace Fellowship, in case you don't know this, that are historical premillennial, people here that are dispensational premillennial. I know folks in our church who are postmillennial. I know folks who are amillennial. And I know some people in our church who don't know the difference between the millennium and a millipede. And they're totally happy. All right? This is not something you want to divide over. Because let me put it to you like this. People like us who've been brought together through a fact of the past in order to be in fellowship in the present should never divide over a question of the future. Oh, that was good. I'm going to say that again (laughs) just because some of you didn't get that. People like us who've been brought together in unity over a fact of a past, that is Jesus' death and resurrection brought us together. In order to be in fellowship in the present, should never divide over a question of the future. And so let's hold our convictions about the millennium. Whatever yours are, let's hold them with tremendous humility. But now I want to turn a corner today in our message, and we're going to jump back to chapter 19, which is a very exciting chapter in Scripture. And I want, for the balance of our time, to leave you with some things that are more certain, more solid, where we can have more confidence than about what the particulars of the millennium might be. And I want to make three declarations. If you're jotting notes, you might want to jot these down. And I pray today that God will challenge your heart through some of the realities and certainties here in chapter 19 of the Revelation. First statement, knowing that Jesus is returning is more important than knowing when he's returning. Throughout Christian history, unfortunately, Christianity has been plagued by people who love to set dates thinking they've figured out when he's coming. Some of you are old enough to remember back in 1988 when a former engineer by training, Edgar Wisnott, wrote a little book entitled 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. And he said, oh yeah, Jesus said you can't know the day nor the hour, but he didn't tell us we can't know the week. And so even though Jesus said he didn't know, Edgar did. And he had boiled it down through all of his calculations, he said, to September 11, 12, or 13, Jesus was going to return. People were all excited. Edgar was not, was on the talk shows. He was making the circuit on the radio, on the TV. His book was selling like hotcakes. People were buzzing and excited. People were getting ready to sell their houses and go up to a mountain and wait for Jesus to get them out of here. Well, I happened to be in Rochester, New York during that exact time. We had a Billy Graham crusade in the old Silver Stadium. I don't know if you ever ever went there for a baseball game or something. The old Silver Stadium, it's been torn down now, but that's where we were having a crusade from the 11th to the 18th of September, and Jesus was supposed to return. Can you imagine the buzz? I mean, there was excitement that first night. And I'll admit, I was standing with members of the team on the very night Jesus was supposed to return, according to Edgar Wisnott, and nobody could find Billy Graham anywhere. We were panicked. (laughs) Have we missed it? Well, finally, he was discovered, and we all breathed a sigh of relief. Don't 
be duped by the date setters. Don't be duped by the date setters. One guy in California sometime back said he had figured it all out when Jesus was coming. He took his own age, multiplied it by the number of children in his family, threw in 666 from Revelation 13, divided all that by the number of pups in a, the litter that his dog had, and he knew for sure that's when Jesus was coming back. Often, the date-setting process is just about that bizarre or ludicrous. Folks, knowing that he's coming back is more important than knowing when. I want to talk to your heart for a moment before we quickly move on. Most of your friends, this isn't even on their radar. Most of your friends who desperately need to know Christ don't care, honestly, I'm being blunt, don't care about your view of the millennium. What they need is some hope for life. What they need is to know, is there any meaning? Is there any possible purpose for this life? What they need to know is how to be saved so they can be with the Lord forever and have hope beyond the grave. John did not write the revelation to incite fights. He wrote it to inspire faith. So let's remember whatever your views that it's more important to know he's coming than to know when he's coming. Certainty number two, the bride of Christ must prepare for the wedding. Now, chapter 19 is one of those very exciting chapters because as you read it, it begins to explode with praise and hallelujahs. We skip on down to verse 6, and he says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I don't do hardly any weddings these days. I just had to pull back from that back in 2006 I was officiating 20 to 30 weddings a year, and that's, that's a lot of time. We, so we had to just try to look to our wedding ministers and our staff team to handle those. But when Debbie and I used to sit down with young, engaged couples, the, this bride who's so excited, this groom who doesn't have a clue what he's getting into, uh, we used to sit down with them and I would always tease them, and we'd have fun, and we'd laugh a lot together and joke around. But I'd always kind of look at the bride and groom and say, I, I just want to be clear with you guys. Mr. Groom, I'm going to look at you occasionally today, but this is all about the bride. Can we be honest? She has dreamed of this day and planned for this day, and we want to do everything we can to make her happy. We don't want to ignore you, Mr. Groom. But this is all about the bride. You're never going to walk through a new stand at the counter and find Groom Magazine. It just doesn't exist. Nobody would buy it. This is all about the bride. But this wedding is so different. This wedding is all about the groom. It's all about Jesus. For those of you who love fun facts from the Bible, here's one for you. We use the word hallelujah a lot. 
It's one of those words that just translates as it is into every language practically around the globe. Hallelujah. So if you're in a group of, that's very multi-ethnic and multilingual, when you come to the word hallelujah, you're all on the same page because it's the same in every language, okay? Hallelujah. Hallelujah appears all over the Old Testament. Do you realize, though, that in the New Testament, the word hallelujah, this is strange, only appears four times? Only four times in the whole New Testament, and guess what? All four of them are right here in the first part of chapter 19. I told you a few weeks ago that Revelation 11 inspired Handel's Messiah, and it did. But the other part of Revelation that was pivotal in that inspiration was the first six verses of chapter 19, where the word hallelujah appears in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. And it means praise the Lord. Look at the exuberance in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, white and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I don't know if you can see this or not, but here on my ring finger is my wedding ring. I love this ring. I love to wear it. And you know why I wear this ring? You know why I wear this wedding ring that I received way back in uh, 1990? Because this wedding ring for me, this is what it means for me, it's a declaration that someone has captured my heart. This is a declaration to me, I'm taken Someone has captured my heart, and she is precious to me, and, and I'm in love with her. And by the way, this year, June the 30th, 2015, we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Debbie, they're clapping for you. They're clapping for you. Way to hang in there, girl. That's what they're saying today. Way to hang in there. We don't know how you did it, but good job. Way to go. That's what this wedding ring means. Now, let me ask you a question. Does the world know who's captured your heart? Later on, we're going to read about who gets invited to this wedding. And in that list, there's a list there that talks about those who aren't invited. It's very interesting. You know who isn't invited? It mentions those whose lives have just been characterized by sexual immorality, by greed, by idolatry. But then it throws in a word that I would have never guessed. It throws in the cowardly. They're not invited. The cowardly. So let me ask you, Does the world know that you belong to Christ? Do they know that he has captured your heart and he's number one in your priorities? Verse 9 reads, Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Now, folks, I want you to know that's a list 
That's an invitation list that you want to be on. You say, but how? This is for people who have acknowledged that they've hijacked their own lives, done their own thing, gone their own way, broken God's laws, and they've acknowledged that they're sinners, unworthy of being saved. Those on that wedding list are people who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. So let me ask you, is that you? Is that you? Has Jesus captured your heart? One final statement today. When the apocalyptic dust settles, make sure that you're standing with Jesus. Now, next week, I'm going to wrap this series up. I've loved this series, and I, I've never received so much interesting and positive input. It's been great journey, a great journey. And as we've said, there's so many things that maybe someday we'll cover again and go into in more detail. But next weekend, we wrap up by talking about heaven. And I want you to know, next weekend, next weekend, it's going to be heaven. I mean, you're going to love it. And if you're on the Lambs team, and if you're on that wedding list, you you're going to be beside yourself next week as we look into heaven in chapters 21 and 22. But Jesus has promised us all through the scriptures that he's returning. Did you know that the second coming of Jesus Christ is either mentioned or alluded to 300 times in the New Testament? This is not something that people argue over like views of the millennium. The second coming of Christ is one of those essential foundations of the Christian faith. (laughs) Without it, you don't have historical, biblical Christianity. Jesus promised he would return one day. He said it, for instance, in a passage like John 14. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What a great passage. Now, some people believe that Jesus was referring there to our death. And that he would come and he promised he, when we die, he would come to meet us at the point of death. And there's a sense in which I believe, I believe, my conviction is that's true. Jesus does meet us at death. I do believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as 2 Corinthians 5.8 seems to indicate. Just as a hand can slip out of a glove and that glove that has Envelop that hand will maybe stay in the same form and shape. So one day our soul will depart from this body. And you look at the body and you go, well, it kind of looks the same. It's the same form. But the person who animated that body has gone on to be with God. And I think Jesus comes to meet us at death. Back in November of 1997... Landon Whitley of Charlotte, North Carolina, was nearly killed in a horrible automobile accident. His father was killed in that accident. His dad was driving the car. 
And Landon was so severely injured that he had to be lifted with a helicopter and taken to the nearest hospital. And the emergency medical team on board said they had to revive nine-year-old Landon three different times en route to the hospital. The days that followed, Landon had to undergo a complex brain surgery. And uh, he was in a coma for several weeks following the accident. But when he finally came out of the coma, his mother really dreaded telling him that his dad was gone because Landon had been so close to his dad. But before she could tell him, when Landon came back from this coma that he had been in, before she could tell him anything about his dad, he said, Mom, I've been to heaven three times. The first time I saw angels and they were singing and clapping for me. The second time I saw dad and he was with Jesus. And I wanted to stay with dad, but Jesus hugged me, Mom, and told me to go back and tell people what I had seen. And then Landon added, and mom, I saw your two other children. At this, Mrs. Whitley gulped and lost her breath because she had had two miscarriages that she had never, ever mentioned to Landon. When we die, Jesus comes to meet us. That's a part of his promise. But I want you to understand clearly today Jesus' promise of coming again is far more than that. He promised to return to this earth. Listen to how he put it in Matthew 24. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus himself promised that he would come again. And Revelation 19 simply reminds us of that and tells us a little more about what it will be like. I want you to know today, the first time he came, he came humbly as a baby. The second time, he comes in power as a conquering king. The first time, Jesus came rather quietly. Only a few shepherds and wise men really got the announcement. The second time, it's going to be very public. The Bible predicts that every eye will see him. The first time, Jesus came in grace to save but the second time you need to know he's coming in wrath to administer justice and my question to you is simply this are you ready for that are you ready for that if Jesus should return even before this very service is ended. Are you ready for that? I have no desire to frighten you with my words. But I do want to show you what Scripture says. Look with me at Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful 
and true. Now, by the way, you don't have to be Professor Clouseau. You don't have to be some uh, investigator to figure out who this is. It's obviously, you may remember back in chapter 6, there was a white horse there with a rider on it. You may remember that. He had a crown and a bow. And I told you the scholars debate who it is riding on the white horse. Well, maybe so. But this one, nobody debates. No scholar debates who is riding on this white horse and coming in the clouds of glory. Its rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Catch this detail. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Countries typically wage war. He does it himself. His eyes are blazing with fire. He's wearing numerous crowns, a royal robe. But the detail I want you to notice is this. The white horse represents victory. That's what ancient conquerors did. When a great general, a great leader had just vanquished a foe in battle, they would mount a white horse and ride through the city to the applause and the accolades and the praise of the adoring citizens. The white horse is emblematic of victory. But did you catch that detail? He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. John is simply giving us a visual flashback. to the. Notice the battle hasn't even started yet. <laughs> There's no need for blood. There's been no bloodshed yet. He's giving us a visual flashback to the victory Jesus won at Calvary when he became a perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of humanity, for your sins and mine. And his blood covered all the stuff that we've ever done if we put our trust in him. Verse 15 says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Growing up as a young Christian, we used to sing that little song, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, glory, hallelujah. And that comes from this ascription. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. Do you know him today? Are you ready for his return? Has he captured your heart and affection? This is no typical groom. This is the warrior groom who's coming to take care of business out of love for his bride. And if you have trouble reconciling that justice side of Jesus and you think he's all love, you haven't read the New Testament carefully. Jesus' character embraces all of those attributes, and he is complete justice, complete mercy, complete love, complete holiness, 
and here he's coming in wrath. Verse 19 says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. What an epic battle. But the strange thing is, as you read this description, it's not really much of a battle, is it? If you've read it, you know what I'm saying. It's not like your typical battle where there's ebbs and flows and momentum shifts and charges and counter charges. Folks, let's face this is the most lopsided battle in history. Jesus just cleans house. And I remind you, this is the Jesus of the manger. This is the Jesus who allowed himself to be beaten and criticized and cursed and elevated on the cross and lacerated with the whip and mocked and humiliated. And now he comes, some say with a chip on his shoulder, I say in perfect justice. Are you ready for that? Have your sins been taken care of? Because on this day, it's payback time. And all I'm saying in today's message is, when that day comes, you better be sure you're standing with Jesus. I've got to tell you. I've got to warn you. You'd better be sure you're standing with Jesus. Because he's coming to vanquish not only the devil and all the demonic forces, he's coming to vanquish death itself. So here's the bottom line as we close. When you think about it and boil it all down, there's really only two possibilities. Go with me here. Just two possibilities. We're either going to be alive when Jesus returns. I'm simplifying life for you right now. You're either going to be alive when Jesus returns or you're going to die before he returns. You get it? You're either going to be alive when he returns or you're going to die before he returns. And here's the deal. The most important thing in life is to be ready and to be sure that you're standing with Jesus. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. And I want you to be on that list. I want you to be on that invitation list. The wedding supper of the Lamb. May we pray together? Father, I believe I'm talking to people today who if that trumpet sounded right now aren't ready. This should be the moment where they yield to you and stand with you. Lord, may this be the moment where once and for all you capture their heart and they know for sure without any doubt, hesitation, or equivocation that they belong to you. Thank you that you've made it so crystal clear in your word. 300 times you're coming again. You've left no doubt. And thank you, Lord, that you're coming to make right every wrong. You're coming to administer justice. And what matters on that day more than anything else is are we standing with you?
Father, may this be a moment when all over the capital region, everyone listening to this message at all of our sites and locations, people would open their hearts and their lives to you and yield them to you as their Lord and as their Savior. May this be the moment. May this be the hour when we all get ready. In Jesus we pray. Amen.